The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, the podcast is about to begin with uh, episode 11. That's what this one is. Uh, So we've been moving right along, and recently I uh, devoted considerable uh, time of one particular podcast to the entire uh, question of what I call invasion by immigration. The, essentially, the immigration into Europe, uh, migration uh, of people from the MENA countries, M-E-N-A, the Middle East and North African countries, uh, flooding into uh, Hungary and Austria, Germany, uh, France, Italy, uh, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and uh, the tremendous uh, pressures that this is placing on these countries. And I gave you an example. It was a very important podcast. Uh, I, I believe it would have been number nine, where uh, I explained that uh, just because people in different parts of your neighborhood have horrible homes uh, is no reason for you to necessarily accept them moving into your home. There is no obligation on you to do that at all. And I say that because the uh, liberal elite, the pundits, the thought makers and idea generators of secular liberalism um, have been doing their utmost to guilt the Western democracies into accepting these immigrants from the Middle East and North Africa literally without limit. And the, the point that I, I feel I did not uh, clarify is the extent to which uh, these immigrants are destroying, yes, not impacting, uh, not stressing, but destroying their host countries. And I do want to explain that. And furthermore, uh, I received numerous letters, numerous emails from listeners to the podcast who cited biblical verses concerning the stranger among you and the obligations to uh, treat the stranger among you with kindness and with welcome. And so I thought I'd, I'd better explain that as well in, in no uncertain terms because I truly feel that if I'm to do anything at all of value for you, and I take that responsibility very seriously uh, because there is no more important commodity of which you have less of than time. And if you are going to be good enough to invest your time with me and place upon me the responsibility of ensuring you a return on your investment, then at the very least, I do have to clarify the moral dimensions of migration so that uh, you are less vulnerable to the sophistry and uh, downright uh, the the downright um, erosion of truth as the uh, 
liberal elite uh, proceed to do what is ultimately their goal, which is to undo Western civilization. And by bringing in countless immigrants uh, of the particular persuasion that these are, uh, they are well on their way to achieving their goal, which is literally to end the dominance and somewhat success of hundreds of years of Western civilization and, uh, and literally terminate it. Well, first of all, uh, let's, just, let's just review what's really going on here. Uh, as I clarified uh, two podcasts ago, uh, these migrants are all flocking to the West. They are all heading to cultures and countries that Christianity created. That's what it is. And again, if, if this is the first time you're hearing these ideas, I understand that that would be somewhat shocking and controversial. So I, I really do um, urge you, if at all possible, to go back and, and hear the earlier podcast where I lay out the arguments in sequence and, and make the case, I think, fairly persuasively as to the truth of what I'm discussing. And so, uh, so just bear in mind, I mean, when, when Mexicans leave Mexico, where are they headed? Do you think they're going to um, uh, Venezuela? Are Mexicans heading to Guatemala? Are they heading to Panama? Only temporarily, but their goal is the United States. How about the uh, North Africans, the Somalis? Are they heading for Libya? How about the Libyans? Maybe they head for the Congo and the Syrians. Are they trying to get to Jordan? Or how about the Gulf states? Trying to get there? No. The Mexicans are trying to get to the United States, as are the Guatemalans and Venezuelans, by the way. The uh, Libyans are not trying to go to the Congo. They're trying to go to France. And the Somalis, well, they're not going to Libya other than temporarily to get on boats. They're also, they're going to Italy. And the Syrians, are the Syrians trying to get to Bangladesh, Pakistan? No, no, they just want to get to Europe. My friends, do you realize how astounding this is? What an amazing coincidence. And as you know, the Lord's language of Hebrew possesses no word for coincidence. I therefore render the entire concept fallacious. There is no such thing as a coincidence. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling, and it is so clear and so overwhelmingly true. You've got to realize that that's where they're headed. They're all heading to this one place, that the United Nations criticizes and condemns and attacks the West. Where are they headed? They're headed to a place where there's free market capitalism, where private property can be owned and maintained, uh, where there is somewhat of a free press, where one rises by one's own abilities and meritocracy, where government is essentially consensual, where there are actual elections that more or less work, uh, religious tolerance, um, 
decent behavior from men towards women on some level. Again, perfect? No, particularly when you look at the American University campus. The idea of individual freedom. All of these things are part of the baggage of the cultures that Christianity built. And they attract and draw people in by the millions. Whereas the other countries, no, absolutely not. Not trying to, they're not trying to get there at all. And it's also very important to note that all these elites that push for immigration are themselves well protected from its impact. Do you understand what I'm saying? They live in neighborhoods and uh, behind walls and in gated communities where the impact of this massive immigration is hardly felt. They don't get it. And the uh, result is that the people who see what's going on, the people whose neighborhoods are being destroyed, are finding this incredible tension between them and their rulers and their governments and their elites. Now, I also want to point out that the press is very reluctant to tell the truth. Yes, I said it's a free press. I said more or less. The press is very reluctant to let you know some of the things that the immigrants or the migrants into Europe are getting up to. They don't want you to know because it spoils the picture of a mean, horrible Western civilization turning its back, its hardened heart against these sweet, warm-hearted, loving migrants who only want the chance of a better life. And you actually have to look at the overseas press. England is quite open about this. Um, some of the German papers are open about this. It's not hard to find the information that uh, these migrants coming in <coughs> are, uh, well, how shall I put it? Uh, they, the, the ones that were crowded at the railway stations in uh, Budapest in Hungary, well, they, they engaged in the, the rather charming practice we last saw from the Occupy Wall Street folks and from the Guantanamo Bay captives, and that is they would fling plastic bags of their own excrement. That's right. They would fling feces at uh, anybody that came near the, um, the uh, area in which they were being held. Uh, they also uh, developed a chant shouting F-U, uh, where F stood for, uh, as you would expect, the uh, popular Anglo-Saxon expletive. And they also um, had a chant, Allahu Akbar. Uh, yes, Allah is great. So this notion that these folks are coming to integrate and become part of the societies into which they are moving, yeah, not exactly. And um, the, the, the worst part is that most of the ordinary citizens of Hungary and Austria and Germany and Italy and France who are law-abiding people uh, are watching their own laws being ridden roughshod. Uh, their schools, their uh, hospitals, legal systems, social services, everything overwhelmed and utterly incapable 
of serving the people for whom it was originally created. Um, look, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a massive problem. Immigration to the United States until the uh, 1960s was mostly Western European. And that meant essentially people who themselves were part of a Judeo-Christian culture, if not religiously so, at least culturally so. But uh, from then onwards, we had this sudden appearance, massive, huge numbers of immigrants uh, who arrived with no money, no skills, uh, no ability to speak English, no, uh, no background at all, and absolutely no interest in acquiring any of these, any of these things. So whereas up till then, immigration in Europe and immigration into the United States was slow and steady, which allowed integration and assimilation and ultimately intermarriage within the host country. And sure enough, today in the United States, for the most part, uh, you can't tell who came from Irish backgrounds or who came from German backgrounds or who came from English or Scottish backgrounds. The, it, it has worked very well, no longer. With massive Muslim immigration, None of this integration has been taking place at all. I uh, want to tell you a little bit more before we get to the question of the stranger among you, tell you a little bit more that's brought to mind from the fact that I am recording this podcast for you right now in sight of the walls of the ancient city of Jerusalem. Walls that were built in the 16th century by Suleiman the Magnificent, um, excepting he wasn't really that magnificent. More on that and a whole lot else on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. My website, youneedarabbi.com. Youneedarabbi.com. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hold on right there. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Police in Nevada are on the hunt for some vicious vandals who are creating a juicy mystery in one Reno neighborhood. Authorities have been receiving reports of watermelons smashing through windows of cars and homes, and they have absolutely zero idea who's doing it. Homeowners in the area say that they're shocked by the attacks and express that while it's usually a very safe neighborhood, they fear criminals are making the area pretty seedy. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. I'm your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never changed. And one of the things that never changes is that we human beings are much happier with things that we earn than with things that we just get for free. We human beings know that when we raise our children, spoiling them is all too easy, that out of a surfeit of love, we're capable of giving our children everything and asking of them nothing in return, an appallingly tragic way of trying to create a happy family. And that is why in ancient Jewish wisdom, 
there is a great deal of information on not only what parents are obligated to with respect to their children, but just as importantly, if not more importantly, what is to be expected from their children. And applying these principles to the entire challenge of what I call invasion by immigration, the extent to which the entire political, cultural, and religious complexion of Europe is being jeopardized in a way that is irretrievable. That entire area tremendously impacted by misunderstanding of how immigrants are to be treated. In the early days of the United States, by the way, all the way up to um, the years following World War II, a great deal was expected of immigrants into America. You, uh, you needed to be able to support yourself. You needed to be able to support the family you brought. Uh, you needed to uh, learn English, and you needed to learn civics, and you needed to become a citizen. It has all changed since then. It's all changed in the direction of requiring nothing from immigrants. Don't forget that when immigrants arrived here in the 1800s, the 1900s, all the way up to the 1940s and 50s, they were not being given social security. They were not being given welfare. They were not being given food stamps. They were not being... I mean, I, I'm not even going to take your time by going through the entire list of all the entitlements. But no, that's not what your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who immigrated to America experienced. No, they were expected to make a contribution to the country. They had to support themselves and they had to pay taxes. And today, that's not what immigrants do. Not at all. In, uh, in the times of earlier generations of immigrants to the United States, uh, you didn't have large numbers of them uh, turning against the country that, has, that provided them with new homes. But now, it's all different. It's entirely different. Uh, there's a guy called uh, Fazlidin Kurbanov who uh, came as a refugee and what happened to him? Well, he was provided with uh, all kinds of benefits. He was provided with a home. I think it was in Idaho. And um, he then began conspiring to, uh, to <laughs> commit acts of violence against us. Um, he, he was overheard by the FBI, by the FBI uh, telling his buddies, his Muslim friends back home, that, um, that we're all set with the help of God, we can do an, a martyrdom here in America. There are military installations right here. There's targets. Oh, he was so excited. That's all he wanted to do. And, um, and there it is. Uh, you know, th this is the kind of thing uh, that, that's going on. The FBI knows, uh, there's no question about this, that we have let in hundreds of terrorists posing as refugees. Hundreds. Um, the uh, uh, two of them are uh, Muhammad Sharif Hamadi and Wad Ramadan Alwan. Uh, these guys have their fingerprints all over improvised explosive devices seized in Iraq. Uh, these guys have been taped bragging about how they killed American soldiers in Baghdad. And these are the guys who've been resettled 
if you don't mind, into public housing. They don't pay rent. They live in public housing for free. And uh, they get all kinds of entitlements, including food stamps. And what do they do? They start conducting war against America. Do you remember the two Tsarnaev brothers, the Boston Marathon bombers? They came here as refugees. They got asylum in the United States. Of, and then what do they do? They killed three Jewish people by cutting their throats. And then a few months later, they killed four people and injured dozens of others at the Boston Marathon. And the entire Tsarnaev family was here under the asylum laws. How many hundreds of refugees do we have here from, from Somalia and everywhere else who've been given, by the way, fast-track citizenship? And uh, again, I'm not saying that every single Muslim immigrant in America is a terrorist, but I am saying that every single terrorist turns out to be a Muslim immigrant to the United States. And this is what we've done to the United States. And now it's what we're busy trying to do to Europe as well. That's what we're trying to accomplish. Um, how sad is that? And um, what are these people, do, what are they doing in Europe? Well, again, the, uh, the, the, the important thing to realize is that the elites are not opening up their places for immigrants. They're not saying, you know, we've got the Sorbonne University do you know how big the Sorbonne University is? Do you know what a great tent city? They could house 50,000 immigrants in, uh, to France in tents in the grounds of the Sorbonne University easily. Do they do it? No. By the way, how about the Vatican? Uh, do you know how many, how many tents we could put in the plaza where the, the Pope appears? Do you know what we could do there? Why not? Why not? Because the elites who push for immigration, and here I must include the Pope, unfortunately, I, I wish I didn't, and uh, frankly, uh, I, I know that we would have had more wisdom in my, again, I'm not a Roman Catholic, so I guess um, I, I can say certain things that, uh, that loyal Catholics cannot and would not say, and I, I'm certainly, I'm not going to be rude or disparaging, I would never do that, but I would say that... Um, Pope Benedict was a very wise man. I'll tell you that. He was a very wise man. And uh, you can understand from that um, everything else I need to, to convey on the topic. Now, as I told you earlier, um, I'd received fairly large numbers of, of emails. And by the way, let me here again just uh, let you jot down the the way to send me emails. I, I love hearing from you. I really do. And I, some of you have already discovered how many emails I actually respond to. So uh, the the uh, address on my website is rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, that's R-A-B-B-I, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, the uh, d there is a tab there marked Contact Us. You can go ahead and use that, and uh, I will receive email from you. That's exactly what many, many people did who wrote in to say, well, wait a second, you know, the Bible you claim to believe in uh, actually speaks about the way we should treat the, uh, the, 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 the stranger among you. Uh, welcome them and make them part of uh, every... Okay, fine. So I thought let me spend a moment just clarifying that, if you don't mind. 
uh, first of all, the Hebrew word in the Hebrew scriptures for the stranger is a geir. It's called uh, a gr are the consonants that make up the Hebrew word for stranger. And it's not a loose word like the English word stranger. The English word stranger can be used in so many contexts. Um, uh, if I haven't seen you for a long time, you, you know, we normally visit with each other every week or two. Meanwhile, you've been abroad for a, a long time, and I finally we run into each other. I might say, hello, stranger. Okay, that's, that's one usage. Uh, another usage is um, I stop somebody to ask for directions. And in fact, it happened to me this morning here in Jerusalem. Um, a car stopped as I was walking down the road, and, uh, and there were two German tourists inside. I recognized their accents, and they said, we're strangers here. Could you give us some directions, which fortunately I was able to do. Uh, we're strangers, okay? And, and so it is. There are many different usages for the word stranger. But in the Hebrew scripture, the word geir has a legal implication. It means something very specific. And, uh, and that is somebody who, upon whom very specific obligations fall. And the person can either undertake and accept those obligations or not. And if he doesn't, he doesn't get to stay. There are very specific requirements having to do with finances, having to do with religion, having to do with, uh, with the way they raise their children. There are lots of issues here. It's not as if the Bible says, oh, hello, anybody who shows up, you've got to accept and, and welcome. Not true. That's simply not a reality. That's not what the Bible says at all. And it is completely fallacious and uh, a distortion of the meaning of the Bible to suggest that uh, the, the, the Bible's argument is that, oh, anybody who walks, arrives as a stranger, you've got to extend the hand of generosity to them. No, sorry, that is simply not the case. Now, look, um, our... Uh, are, are we filled with compassion for these, uh, in many cases, desperate and wretched souls trying to get somewhere that they can better their lives? Of course, I understand that. There's no question about that. But as I explained in a uh, podcast, I think it was number nine, uh, I explained very well what, uh, what this means and why it is that your primary obligation is to protect the uh, the viability of the society you already are, where your family is, where your fellow citizens are. And uh, as these circumstances are being jeopardized and imperiled by the arrival of large numbers of citizens, uh, large numbers of immigrants with not only no ability to integrate, but no intention of integrating. And by the way, the proof of this is if you don't, uh, if you don't believe me and you happen to, to travel in Europe or you can do some research on this, you will discover that it's absolutely the rule, whether it's in France or in, uh, in Germany or in, uh, uh, in Norway, in Denmark, uh, in a way that is not true in the United States, although it's beginning to be the truth. You know what I mean? There used to be many, many years ago, there was a short period of time where uh, Jewish immigrants were living on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, 
and Irish immigrants had their neighborhood, and the Germans lived somewhere else. But for the most part, that's gone. That's gone. And uh, there is complete integration. Not true with Muslims. Uh, there are neighborhoods today in both uh, Brooklyn, neighborhoods in, in, in um, um, Michigan, where, um, frankly, uh, Jews get attacked on a regular basis if they're anywhere near there, um, because they are completely Islamic and, um, and largely out of control. Now, not to the same extent as the Muslim subsidies in Paris and Lyon and, uh, and many other French cities where there are entire neighborhoods, usually just outside the main city, that the police will not enter. These are cities in which Sharia law uh, is practiced and, uh, and applied and, um, and absolutely no intention of integration. Uh, the, role, the goal is not integration. The role on some level is domination. The role is a takeover. The latest is that German immigrants have asked uh, for Oktoberfest in Munich to be banned because they serve alcohol. Do you know they've been having the Oktoberfest in Munich, oh, I think for about 200 years? And the uh, Muslim immigrants are pushing the city of Munich to stop the custom of Oktoberfest because, well, it's offensive to Muslims because it serves alcohol. Um, or how's about the uh, migrants in Austria and Hungary who were provided boxes of food and clothing by the Red Cross, which they violated in uh, unspeakable ways and threw on the ground and rejected. Why? Because the boxes came with a cross on them. Yes, it's called the Red Cross, <laughs> exactly, and uh, rejected angrily. My friends, this is a, a very serious problem. Not so much the migrants. Uh, the, the serious problem is the collapse of the will of the elite to protect their own culture in any way whatsoever. Let me explain just a bit more as soon as we get back in just a moment. Please wait right where you are. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Chris Salcedo. Allow me to educate you, you left-wing biased nut, that just because it's illegal doesn't make it Latino. That if illegal is a status of law. It is not a race or an ethnicity. Allow me to remind you of that because apparently you are so incompetent that you think when I talk about clamping down on illegal immigrant and illegal immigrant felons, I'm talking about a race. Chris Salcedo, Saturdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back, and thank you so much for spending time with me here on this podcast, The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, we are uh, taking the entire discussion of what I call invasion by immigration, uh, a little more deeply. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm recording this podcast uh, within sight of the, uh, the walls of the ancient city of Jerusalem uh, in the land of Israel. And uh, the interesting thing about walking in the streets of Israel is the unbelievable diversity of 
race, skin color, clothing. And it doesn't take you long at all to discover that there are only two nations in the world that were built on immigration, Israel and the United States of America. But in both cases, until relatively recently in the case of America, the immigration was carefully administered. It was understood by everybody that an enormous benefit was being conferred upon the immigrant. And he was expected to comport himself likewise. The countries of Israel and the United States conducted themselves with the awareness and knowledge that they were offering a priceless, valuable commodity, citizenship in this new country, freedom, an opportunity. And they didn't belittle it and demean it by turning their laws into a mockery. There was a procedure. Everybody was expected to follow it. And those who violated were penalized. And uh, in Israel, that still continues to be the case, in spite of the fact that the rest of the world laid into Israel a couple of years ago uh, for not being willing to accept more Sudanese refugees. Uh, Sudanese refugees left the Sudan, came up uh, through North Africa into Egypt. Do you think they stopped in Egypt? No, sorry. They kept going into the Sinai Desert. Do you think they stopped there? Not at all. They kept right on going until they reached the unguarded borders of Israel. And uh, they came right in and gave themselves into the Israeli authorities, asking for asylum and refugee status. And no sooner were they starting to be provided with housing along the European model, they became, uh, they basically they set up uh, gangs, criminal gangs, and today parts of South Tel Aviv uh, are dangerous to walk into. Um, Israel mistakenly allowed far too many Sudanese refugees to enter on this basis. Uh, these are people who cynically already know how to manipulate the system uh, in exactly the same way that those people arriving in Europe do. And uh, the conditions in Israel, after all, talking about a very small country, talking about a small country, a population of about 10 million, of whom only 6 million are Jews. And so 50,000 disruptive and uh, antagonistic, hostile Sudanese refugees. Pretty serious stuff. Pretty serious. But uh, here it is, at the same time, a country that successfully integrated millions of refugees in the aftermath of World War II, millions of refugees in the years 1948 to 55, as the lives of Jewish citizens in Arab countries, from Morocco all across North Africa, all the way uh, Libya, Egypt, all the way Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, all of these places that had sizable Jewish communities, particularly Morocco and Syria, uh, the Jews there were uh, uh, tortured, uh, massacred, and um, eventually they all left. And the overwhelming majority of them traveled as refugees to Israel, where they immediately became uh, successful parts of the, of the economy, successful parts of society. And to this day, uh, a, you know, your cabinet minister or your cab driver 
may as well be originally from Syria or Morocco, or for that matter from France or from Australia or South Africa. It's an amazing story of uh, successful immigrant um, integration. Now, by contrast, here's a funny thing. A week ago, I was in Abu Dhabi, and I was also in Jordan. And uh, it's, it's another story as to why and what, but nonetheless, there I was. Now, how many immigrants do you think Abu Dhabi is, is hosting? A little while before that, I was in the city of Doha, which is the capital of Qatar, another Gulf state emirate. And how many immigrants do you think are being welcomed into Qatar? the home of uh, Al Jazeera News, by the way, uh, Al Gore's latest delight, and uh, no immigrants there. You don't see any. How about on the streets of Abu Dhabi? No immigrants to be seen. Many contract workers, by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the lives of the, Fili uh, the uh, Indonesians, Filipinos, and... Uh, and nationals from many, many other countries who are brought there to work, uh, have their passports taken away, maltreated, pretty bad stuff. But immigration, there's no immigrants to be seen there. Saudi Arabia, I haven't been there, but it reported that there are no immigrants there. Jord Jordan, none there. Now, I kind of understand Jordan because uh, Jordan has had a uh, uh, quite a bad time with Islamic extremist immigrants. The term Black September has its origin from events in the uh, Principality of, of, of Jordan. So uh, I, I kind of understand that, but no immigrants being brought into Abu Dhabi and Dubai and Qatar and uh, Oman and all the other uh, rather wealthy Gulf Emirates. So now we've got to ask ourselves, so all these Muslims from Syria are pouring into Hungary, and, in, and by the way, the Prime Minister of Hungary got into dreadful hot water for daring to say that the Christian nature of Hungary was being threatened by large arrivals of, of Muslim migrants who had no interest in, into, yeah, fine, I get it. Well, he's right, because Christianity is what built the cultures to which the world's immigrants, Muslim predominantly, are flocking. And is it to integrate? By all indications, not. By all indications, the goal is invasion by immigration. They have, they have plans, and it's a long-term plan. But that isn't good for Danes in Denmark and Norwegians in Norway and Swedes in Sweden and Frenchmen in France and Italians in Italy and Austrians in Austria. Uh, people whose families have lived in these areas for many, many, many centuries, as long back as the families remember, and now the entire nature of their country. Now, the, the gap between what the uh, authorities, so-called authorities, doesn't that have a slightly sinister sound to you? The authorities? It does to me. Uh, the, the gap between the liberal elites, the academics, the politicians, all of those who are so blithely welcoming the immigrants. We go, oh, bring them in. It doesn't matter at all. Bring them in in any numbers. Uh, they, not having to in any way uh, pay the price of that, not in the slightest bit. 
do they have to worry about it? Uh, the, uh, the, the folks themselves, the ordinary man in the street, the people whose lives are being disrupted by this, are themselves discovering that uh, there are political parties arising that understand their feelings. Now, of course, to the liberal West, uh, these are frightening parties. These are right-wing parties, xenophobic, foreigner-hating uh, parties. Well, you know, call them what you like, but they are speaking to the hearts and fears of the ordinary citizens of the European countries whose lives are being overturned because of what's going on. Um, Saudi Arabia taking in immigrants? No, 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 not at all. But uh, you know they, <laughs> you know they have done. Thank you very much. And they have undertaken to build to pay for the building of two hundred mosques in Germany. How do you like that? Why are they doing that? Um, well, uh, because you will remember that it was Saudi-sponsored mosques in uh, Germany from which Mohammed Atta and some of his merry band of 9-11 murderers actually came. They already came from mosques in Germany. And uh, why is Saudi Arabia offering to build 200 more mosques? In my view, it's because they understand that uh, if they can keep young male Muslims in the mosque, uh, those young male Muslims will become the future jihadis. They will become the future bearers of the, of the Saudis' own particular brand of extremism. That's, that's what they're counting on. Look, it's, it's pretty rough. Um, you know, we, we speak about our, you know, our friends in Mexico, but like, do you all remember? Do you all remember? It's it's like only yesterday. I'm I'm telling you, I I don't th I don't think it was three years ago uh, that the Mexican government, the government itself, um, printed manuals for its own citizens on how to get into the United States illegally. And by the way, they were comic books, not not in writing. They were pictures, because I think they knew full well these folks can't read. And why do they want them in America? I suspect it's because Mexico benefits enormously from about 30. Do you know how much money is sent back every year by Mexicans in the United States? $30 billion a year. Three zero billion with a B. So obviously they're uh, pretty comfortable with Mexicans moving into the United States, particularly since they've arranged, as you know, Mexico a little while ago arranged dual nationality laws. They changed their law so as Mexicans in America could remain Mexican. Again, um, it, you know, America should have insisted on one or the other. We didn't. But uh, the, the goal, again, was to, as much as possible, create a permanent category of Mexican-Americans, people who are not integrating, have no intention of integrating, will continue creating um, little, uh, not such little, creating uh, hubs of Mexican political and cultural life in the United States of America. And essentially, the United States becomes balkanized, just as Germany will, just as Sweden, Italy, France, Belgium, Holland. Um, 
all will. And the result? The ongoing weakening of Western civilization. When we come back, uh, another uh, further explanation on why you are under no moral obligation to accept refugees or to accept migrants. Absolutely none. There is no such moral obligation. Why is that? I'll explain coming back. Hold on right where you are. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Pure Opelka with Michael Pelka. This week's show, busier than a one-legged man at a butt-kicking contest. We've got a sharpshooter who splits two cards with two bullets, only pulling one trigger. How does that happen? Plus, a Blaze editor experiments on herself. And a guy wonders, what's in the First Amendment? Most people don't know. Don't miss it. Pure Opelka. Saturdays, 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everyone. It is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Uh, this is episode 11, and I'm delighted that you're investing your time with me. As you know, I take the responsibility very solemnly and do my utmost to make sure I provide a return on your investment so as to make it as worthwhile as possible for you to spend your time together with me. Appreciate it and love to hear from you, so uh, do make sure you go to my website at youneedarabbi.com, youneedarabbi.com, and uh, go to the Contact Us tab, and you're able to shoot me an email, which I will definitely read. Uh, furthermore, you can also subscribe to my free weekly email called Thought Tools. Go ahead and do that. And uh, let's proceed. You know what? This will be the last segment on the immigration thing, I think, and then we'll move on to something that could hardly be more distant from immigration. Uh, let's talk about pickup trucks for a little bit, shall we? Uh, and at that point, I, I hope that all women listening do not say, what? Pickup trucks? Really? Clearly not for us. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, I think you will find what I have to say about pickup trucks uh, to be extremely interesting. I certainly hope so. Otherwise, it will turn out to, uh, to be certainly a failing in terms of what I am planning to discuss with you on that part of the show. And so, as I said, wrapping up here, making clear that no moral obligation exists for France or England or Holland to take in Muslim refugees, no matter how miserable their plight is in Syria. Okay, did you hear that? No matter how miserable their plight is, there is no moral obligation on the part of the countries to take in citizens. Now, that is an entirely different story from what you may choose to do as a private individual. If you wish to sponsor an immigrant family, let them live with you, that's fine. You can go to your government and tell them that that's what you'd like to do, and in all probability, you'll, you'll be welcome. That, that you're certainly entitled to do. But to agitate for your government to bring in large numbers of immigrants without the ability to integrate and certainly without the intention to integrate so as that your fellow citizens pay the cost of these arrivals? No, that's a very big problem. I also pointed out how whereas Israel 
uh, has brought in literally millions of immigrants. How many millions? Probably about four million. Uh, as, as you know, the country was founded in 1948, and uh, the numbers of people back then were very, very small. They don't get to be six million by natural, that's six million just Jews, not counting the Arab citizens of Israel. And by the way, uh, in case some of you think that there is a long line of Arab citizens of Israel desperate to get exit visas so that they can go and live in Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon, or Syria, no, that's actually not the case. None of the Arab citizens of Israel have any interest in leaving Israel to go and live under Arab rule. Does that tell you anything? I think so. So uh, Israel manages to, to uh, integrate, literally successfully integrate millions of immigrants, but um, between them, all the Muslim countries, 22 Muslim countries in the Middle East, not capable of absorbing what at the time was no more than a million uh, refugees, of Arab refugees. No. What they did is, under Arafat, they kept them as a permanent underclass with uh, building up grievances against Israel and against the West to the point where these people today, the children of these immigrants, the grandchildren of these immigrants, um, sustained as they are by Western charity, and that's governmental money. Yes, the United States government provides a, a great deal of this money. The United Nations provides a great deal of this money. And uh, what it ensures is that young males are in no way motivated to work or to build up their own in economic independence. They simply uh, find a way to, um, to, get, to, to get on the payroll, usually through organizations like the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. And, uh, you know, why, why do I tell you all of this? Because if the Arab countries themselves make zero attempt to bring in any of the immigrants fleeing Syria, what makes you think that anyone else is under any obligation to do this? What am I talking about? Well, there's a really important verse in Scripture, and again, um, for those of you who are interested in greater insights that can be decoded from the ancient Jewish wisdom embedded in Scripture, for you, I have resources on my website. Just go to the store at rabbidaniellappin.com and you'll be able to um, listen to some of that stuff. So over here, though, however, just very briefly, uh, there's a verse in the 22nd chapter of Deuteronomy, early in the chapter. Uh, you shall not hide yourself if you see your brother's donkey or ox fallen on the road. Instead, you shall help him right them. Okay, so the, uh, the imagery here is you're you know, going your merry way down the road where you notice that your brother's donkey or ox has fallen into the ditch dragging the wagon behind them, and it's a whole mess. And he can't get out. And so your obligation, if he's your brother, meaning he pays dues is what it basically means. In other words, he is also a Hebrew. If it's a person of another faith, you may choose to help or not. The obligation is only of your own faith. Why? Because he is under the same set of obligations, and next time it'll be him taking care of somebody else. In other words, systems make sense. 
cultures make sense. When you are part of an organized group that is uh, unified by a system of obligations, and please, please, please don't ever tell me that groups are unified by systems of rights, because that's wrong. We are unified by sets of obligations. We are never unified by rights in any more than a group of rambunctious children are unified when the clown starts handing out party favors at the birthday party. No, they turn into young thugs. Nobody's unified by rights. We're unified by common obligations. And so you bring your, you unhitch your oxen from your wagon, bring them over and hitch them up to your friend's wagon, and while you're doing that, what do you notice? You discover that your friend has left his wagon. He's gone over to a nearby tree. He's lay down with his head against the root structure in the shade, tilted his head over his eyes, and is taking a little nap, leaving you to get his wagon and uh, team out of the ditch. You know what you do at that point? You simply take your oxen back to your wagon, hitch him up and carry on on your way, leave him where he is. You know why? Because the verse says, you shall not hide yourself. In other words, don't ignore. If you see your brother's donkey or ox fallen on the road, instead, you shall help him right them. It doesn't say you shall right them, you shall help him. And if he's not willing to help himself, you are certainly under no obligation to help him. And my friends, therein lies a ruling that is extremely relevant to the fascinating and ongoing migrant invasion of Europe. And that is, it's perfectly clear that the Islamic countries themselves have zero interest in helping this, either because they just don't care, or perhaps more likely because they enthusiastically approve the invasion by immigration, because they love the idea of more and more European countries leaning towards Islam. It's good. That's a good thing in exactly the same way as it used to be a wonderful thing to have so many countries around the world tending towards the United States. Years ago, I was a student uh, when I traveled to Iran several times. I, I remember walking around Tehran and enjoying it but in those days, Iran and the capital Tehran uh, were very pro-American. They were part of an American vision in the world. And so it was in so many other countries. Today, which countries today lean to an American vision? Uh, Canada, Australia, United Kingdom, Israel does. But that's about it, not a lot of other places. But it was wonderful when you could travel to so many different parts of the world and be welcomed warmly as an American. That's how it used to be. Not surprisingly, that's what Islamic cultures and countries want to do today. They simply want to expand the number of countries in which the influence becomes predominantly Muslim so as that those become uh, an expanded part of uh, Muslim vision. Have you ever heard the word caliphate? Well kind of just defined it, told you exactly what it is. That's right. That is pretty much what is going on.
Right now, uh, I, I do think that one of the most pressing political problems in the United States of America um, is the immigration problem here. It's a very serious problem already. Uh, is it as serious as what's happening in Europe? Um, I think it might be because it's been going on here for a while. And today, what, what is the actual number of immigrants that have not integrated into American life, uh, both Muslim and Hispanic? What is the number? I don't think anybody really knows. I think the ease with which governmental authorities, there's that sinister sounding word again, I think the ease with which uh, governmental authorities accepted the 11 million figure suggests to me that they were relieved that uh, a more accurate higher figure was not cited, but I don't know any more than anyone else does. The number is very big, and uh, one need only travel in certain parts of the country. How about the Central Valley in California, um, entirely Hispanic? Go and take a look. If you're interested, uh, do as I've done. Take a look at what the schools look like in the Central Valley. Take a look at, here's another very good measure. Uh, we in the West have a very strong culture against littering. There are a lot of reasons for that and how it stems from the Judeo-Christian origins of Western civilization. And I can tell you all of that some other time. Bottom line is, we do have a culture against littering. Go and take a look at the Central Valley in California that is now today. Um, for all intents and purposes, it's like a Mexican village. And I think that kind of tells you everything. Uh, do you like old mattresses lying on street corners? Do you like abandoned old furniture? Do you like piles of garbage? That's what, it's, what it is today. And by the way, it wasn't like that. As recently as when I saw it for the first time was 1973. I was a kid. I had I, I just come to the United States. And that was my first time I drove through the Central Valley of California. I drove from San Jose to Los Angeles. And I remember what it looks like then. I remember very clearly. It was still Steinbeck country back then. It really was. Salinas? My goodness. And uh, again, as a, a John Steinbeck fan, um, I, I, I did explore the area a little bit. And, uh, and I saw, and I've seen what it's like recently. So, um, yeah, they're pouring in here. Um, you know, El Salvador taking any Mexican immigrants? No. Honduras? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, only America. Why? Because America has very generous welfare policies. It's as simple as that. I assure you that if Peru developed very generous welfare policies, all of a sudden immigrants would be flocking to Peru. And if Argentina developed very, well, very generous welfare policies, they'd go to Argentina. There's no question about it. The reason they are flocking from Syria, not to Libya, they're going from Syria to the Sudan, absolutely not. Are they going from Syria to Somalia? No. Syria to uh, Lebanon? No. They're going to places with generous welfare policies. And so what can be done? Well, step number one is turn off the welfare faucets. Obviously, obviously, 
But um, I don't think there's any likelihood of that happening really soon. It would be a major step. Forget building fences. Forget all this discussion about building fences. Just stop the welfare. Just make it impossible for arrivals to move on to the welfare rolls. How long do you think it would take before they stop arriving and start heading back? Yeah. Uh, some of these things are, are so simple that only intellectuals, academics, and politicians don't get it. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Quick break, and uh, right after this, when we get back, let me tell you something about pickup trucks, okay? For a total change of pace, why not? Don't go away. Be right back. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Police in Nevada are on the hunt for some vicious vandals who are creating a juicy mystery in one Reno neighborhood. Authorities have been receiving reports of watermelons smashing through windows of cars and homes, and they have absolutely zero idea who's doing it. Homeowners in the area say that they're shocked by the attacks and express that while it's usually a very safe neighborhood, they fear criminals are making the area pretty seedy. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. We proceed with episode 11, and uh, I promised you I would be talking for a few minutes about pickup trucks. And uh, pickup trucks are a topic that bring joy to the heart of many, many American men, and not a few women as well, particularly if you're anything of a fan of country music, uh, then you know the iconic role played by the pickup truck in American culture. But uh, regardless, whether or not you uh, love them or are indifferent about them, me, myself, uh, I've loved pickup trucks. I've owned pickup trucks. And, um, and uh, I would love to own another one. What am I talking about? Well, I thought I would spend just a moment uh, exploring with you whether or not the free market system is a good system or not. Now, everybody, I think, takes it as a given, do we not, that, oh, yeah, 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 we believe in the free market, free market capitalism and so on and so forth. But what is it that makes it not only an effective system, and this is a very important point I want to make, because um, for the most part, many of us need to know deep in our hearts that a system is not merely effective and efficient, but also moral. In other words, human beings, we're a strange breed. The good Lord created us with a need within us every bit as pressing and urgent as our need for food, water, oxygen. This is a need uh, to express virtue, to be able to think of ourselves as more than just animals that get born, that eat and mate and die. We've got to see ourselves, we need that deep down, we, we need to see ourselves as uh, creatures of virtue. And 
if being virtuous costs us something, then so much the better. Have you ever heard the term a hair shirt? In uh, early Catholicism, I believe, a hair shirt was an intensely uncomfortable garment that pious Christians used to wear in order to effect atonement, right? This feels good, paradoxically. In spite of the fact that it hurts and it's uncomfortable, doing that feels good because it's a sacrifice. It's because your virtue is manifest on the basis of your willingness to accept and undergo considerable discomfort. Now, the way the left goes towards environmentalism, well, it's exactly the same. They are happy to reuse their towels for four days in a hotel till the towel will stand up on the floor by itself and the hotel owner is laughing all the way to the bank. But that doesn't matter because the left-wing secular fundamentalist at the hotel says, I'm making a sacrifice for the planet. And so their pantheistic faith lives on sacrifice. And that's exactly what happens. They feel good about that. Do you remember a period in, way back in, in the 70s under President Carter? He started the habit of turning down the thermostat in winter and wearing a sweater. He looked such a dork. <laughs> uh, some people just shouldn't wear sweaters. That's all. I'm sorry. Just don't do it. If, if it's not right for you, just don't do it. And uh, just turn up the thermostat, will you? And, uh, but that was the idea. You felt good by the sacrifice. When, uh, when uh, left-leaning folks are happy to see taxes rise, well, part of it is that uh, they've made theirs, and so they don't care if other people have to pay high taxes because high taxes don't ever, ever make rich people poor. They just stop poor people from becoming rich. So uh, that's one reason they love uh, hearing that taxes are going up because it enlarges government as well. But uh, furthermore, they feel good about it. They feel sacrificial. They're make, Even though they're not really making any sacrifice themselves, but they're able to feel that they are. Have you ever noticed how virtuous many people who drive Priuses are? Now, there's some folks who drive Priuses f just for utilitarian reasons. There are folks who drive Teslas because they just love showing off in a brand new expensive car. But there are many people who drive electric cars uh, because of religious reasons. That's what I'm talking about. That's right, the religion of secular fundamentalism, the religion of environmentalism. And it is a religion. And it makes them feel pious. It makes them feel good. It makes them feel that they are sacrificing. Well, meanwhile... With all of this, there's something else going on, and that is that um, the federal government started years ago already introducing the standards of miles per gallon. And these standards were set in place around about 1975. You remember there was an Arab oil embargo for a while? which needn't have been a crisis had the government not helped turn it into one. But back then, they, uh, the Department of uh, 
well as the Department of Transportation, uh, set up these uh, CAFE standards, right? the corporate average fuel economy uh, standards. And, and these things force car manufacturers to comply uh, with fuel economy standards that the DOT, the Department of Transportation, goes ahead and sets. And they're extremely aggressive ones that are set for 2025. And so if you happen to be somebody who enjoys cars, and I must confess I am one, um, I'm almost thinking that uh, for vacations, it's, it's probably a good thing to just forget about enjoying driving in the United States. It's going to be finished. And rather, just take your vacation in more sensible countries where you can still buy and drive a car that when you put your right foot down, it doesn't yawn, look over its shoulder, and ask who you're talking to. Right? A car that lets go with that throaty roar when you put your foot down on the right pedal. And I want to feel the seat hitting me in my back and pushing me forward. All of that, gone by 2025. Finished. Well, you see, here's the thing. Um, You've got two choices of how to run an economy. One is by the free market, and the other one is by the government. The difference is that the government uses coercion. Nameless, faceless, unelected committees and bureaucrats go ahead and set standards, such as how much fuel your car is going to have to use. Right now, your congressman doesn't sit on that. If you said to your congressman, why are you forcing them to ruin the American car industry, he'd shrug his shoulders and say, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not me. That's the bureaucrats of the Department of Transportation. That's right. That's the size of the government monster that we've created. Whereas if you preferred a more moral kind of economy, well, then you want a smaller government, a less intrusive government, a government that has less power to do things actually, a government rather like the one the founders of the United States of America envisaged. That's right. A very limited role for government enumerated very specifically in, uh, in the very beginning of the Constitution, early on, eighth paragraph. And so uh, all of that would make for a very different kind of society. It would make for a kind of society where we focused on satisfying one another. That's what we would be doing. We'd be focusing on trying to find ways to improve one another's lives because the only way we could get our money that we need is by supplying the needs of other people. What could be more beautiful? Don't you think God would smile at such a system? But instead of that, we've now got a system whereby probably today it's fair to say that half the country, and I, I dread the possibility of it being more, but we're just about at the point today where half the country lives off the sweat of other people's brows. Oh, yeah, I mean, I understand Social Security. I mean, a whole lot of people, are, and they, they're entitled to it. They paid in. But you see, it really would work a whole lot better if everybody just bought their own insurance, their own investments, they took care of their own old age pensions instead of depending on Social Security because as you all know by now, 
you haven't really paid anything into the, into the system. You've just paid a tax. And the government then takes earnings of the next generation to pay your Social Security, which ends up being an absolute fraction of what it could have been had you invested all the money that was taken out of your payroll and put it by yourself into some kind of a, uh, a mutual fund and uh, funded your own retirement. Yes, indeed. But, but no, the system is distorted and uh, by, by enormous government interference and by the fact that now so much of what people and so, what so many people in America live on is essentially the sweat of other men's brows. People who make their living not by creating anything or by doing anything for anyone else, but by receiving a government check of one kind or another. And invariably, if you think of organizations like Amtrak or the Post Office or the IRS or the Veterans Administration, uh, you will see bloated, inefficient organizations where people's pay is in no way proportional to their performance. But there we are. These are the two alternatives, my friend. A free market, a market where exchange is voluntary, or alternatively, a government-centric economy where coercion is the order of the day. And if you now think about it, if you want to become any one of a number of different occupations, like uh, open a nail salon or a hair salon, or any of these, all these, the governmental imposition of licensing and fees is so coercive so as to make it all but impossible for many people to actually seek one of those avenues out of poverty. So uh, among its many intrusions into life, the government came up with the corporate average fuel economy standards, um, which have now been set for 2025. And Again, we've, we've, we've gone through stage after stage of having met certain standards. There was a set of 2016 standards. And all of these things result in uh, making of cars that, that people don't want. These are not, I mean, the cars we settle for, but they're not the cars we chose. And so you might say to yourself, well, wait a sec, what choice was there? After all, there was an Arab oil boycott, or if you don't care for the 1975 Arab oil boycott, which didn't really mean very much, uh, you could say, well, what do you expect? We are running out of fossil fuel. We're running out of oil. Again, if you believe that bilge water, you know, go ahead. You're a free country. You can believe what you like. So you believe that we're running out of oil, and therefore the government must set fuel standards? Wait a sec, why don't we take a look and see how might it work if the government didn't distort the economy and allowed the free market to solve the problem. Let me tell you that in just a moment, coming right back. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. Greece is a welfare state, literally. Greece is Newark, New Jersey. Greece has lived off other people's money for years. And one of the most brilliant quotes 
ever, which happens to apply here, it's the Iron Lady, Margaret Thatcher, who notably said, the problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money. Jay Severin, weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, we are back. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks for being part of it. Website, you know by now, rabbidaniellappin.com. Pay a visit, sign up to Thought Tools, check out the store, and uh, read about the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, which is the nonprofit organization that I'm privileged to serve, dedicated to changing hearts and minds of Americans in the direction of the Judeo-Christian system that gave us Western civilization. All of that at youneedarabbi.com or rabbidaniellappin.com. Both bring you to the same place, of course. And uh, what might America have looked like had we still had a government of the kind the founders designed and uh, there was an Arab oil boycott for a while in the 70s, and uh, there is widespread fear now that we're running out of oil and we've got to do something. Well, it's very, very simple. You can be quite sure that in exactly the same way that there are bakery shops that make gluten-free bagels, and there are bakery shops that make... Um, specialize in very rich French-type cakes and pastries, and there are bakery shops that cater to folks who want artisan bread. It's wonderful, right? Whatever you want. There are people there who will go ahead and make it for you. That's the beauty of a free market. Yes, God is smiling at it. In exactly that same way, there would be car makers, maybe one, maybe two, who'd pop up and they'd say, you know what, there are a whole lot of people here who are obsessed with the fear of running out of gas, running out of petroleum. We're going to make cars for them. Of course that would happen. If indeed this is something that enough Americans worry about, and I, although I don't, I must presume that there are enough Americans because otherwise there should have by now been a political revolt against what the government has done to cars, what the government has done to gasoline prices by its interference in the economy. Since there has not been a populist revolt, I must assume that uh, quite a large number of Americans do in fact believe, oh, we're running out of petroleum. So, okay, fine. If that's the case, then there would be car companies that would make cars for those folks. And then there would be other people who, uh, who like me, who just love driving a, uh, an automobile with 12 cylinders. Okay, fine. Cut me some slack, okay? I, I can already hear letters of protest being written with scratchy pens on rough paper, sending off to me your indignation. Come on, please. Just It's a free country, okay? I'm not impinging on you. Am I using up your oxygen? Am I using up your petroleum? Cut me some slack here. I like cars with 12 cylinders. And if I cannot get a car with 12 cylinders, I'll settle for a car with a V8 engine configuration. And only if I absolutely cannot buy or rent a car with that V8 configuration will I consider 
a six-cylinder, provided it has at least two turbos as well. Okay, fine. That's me. Fine. So how am I hurting you by going along and getting the car I want? What am I doing to you? Well, we're raising the cost of gasoline. Is that true? Well, wait a sec. When the price of gasoline goes up, that is exactly how a free market, if it's not, by the way, if it's not the government imposing higher taxation. By the way, I bet you don't know how much of each gallon you buy is tax. I bet you don't know that. Do yourself a favor. I can't tell you because it depends to some extent on the state in which you live, but I sure know, I certainly know it for a number of states, you'd be shocked of how much of the money you pay for a gallon of gasoline goes to taxation, state and federal. You'll be shocked. And, uh, oh, it's, by the way, to build highways, right? And if you believe that, I think you might be interested in the Golden Gate Bridge. Brooklyn Bridge has already been sold too many times. But uh, you know that, uh, that whenever tax increases are being bandied about Congress, I can just see the, uh, the politicians winking at each other as they say, well, uh, let's say it's for highway improvement because everybody wants to see highway improvement. Yeah, right, of course we do. But city planners are intent on making sure that we don't get highway improvement because they've already decided they want to see fewer cars on the road, not more cars on the road. Look, there's a whole lot going on there. We are being manipulated. It's no longer a government of us, by us, without consent. No. No, today we are governed not by the politicians we elect every few years. We're governed by a vast army of unelected bureaucrats who run our lives and embitter them. That's true. You can count on that. And, uh, and so the point is that had the government stayed out of the entire fuel economy uh, situation, it's none of their business. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say that they should be doing that. Did the Founding Fathers set rules as to how many oxen or donkeys or horses you can have pulling your buggy? Of course not. So why should they set rules about how many horsepower you should have under your hood? But they do. And they impose additional special taxations if, they ho if the horsepower rating is too high. What's it got to do with government? But we accept so much already today. We're so placid and docile about so much of this. Well, had the government stayed out of it, it's very simple. There'd be cars that ran on very little gasoline. There'd be cars that, that use a whole lot more and deliver a whole lot more performance. And everybody would do what they like. There are always going to be people who are more dollar conscious at the gas pump than others. Me, I just as soon save money. Uh, I don't eat at expensive restaurants. I don't go, I don't go to Broadway shows. Um, these are just things that don't particularly interest me. But I do like cars of high performance. I don't mind spending a few extra dollars at the pump. That's just me. But wait a sec. That was what America was supposed to be, land of freedom, wasn't it? Not equality. Land of freedom where each person could follow their own dreams, aspirations, goals, visions, desires, as long as they don't harm other people. Oh, but you are harming other people. You're using up all the gasoline. Well, wait a sec. Well, then the price... And the marketplace will take care of that. It'll quickly escalate the price to a point where even I wouldn't be willing to pay it. And then I, too, would buy a flashlight on four-wheel, I mean, pardon me, a Prius. And um, 
That, that's how it works. But no, interference by government is the order of the day, and nothing distorts the free market, nothing distorts freedom as much as that. And so what's happened is the glorious American pickup truck, and you basically got four uh, contenders, right? And, and this is how it's been for a number of years already. You've got the famous Ford um, 150, 250 and 350 if you want it in the, uh, um, the, the bigger tonnage um, models. But basically the famous Ford F-150. You've got the Chevy or GMC Silverado pickup. Uh, you've got the uh, Ram, the Dodge Chrysler Ram. And you have the Toyota Tundra. And they're all, you know, the, the ratings are, are fairly similar on these vehicles. Amazingly so. Why? Well, partially they've honed in on the sweet spot, on what most consumers want within some variation. And, um, and uh, that plus will come back to the CAFE standards that the government has imposed. But if you, if you take a look at, at those vehicles today, uh, let me give you an example. Okay, uh, In terms of their weight, the variation is minor. Um, the Ram weighs 5,900 pounds. The Toyota Tundra is 5,800 pounds. Uh, the Silverado is 5,600. The, um, the, the Ford 150, 5,600. So they're all pretty much of a muchness there, you know. But, um, and, you know, the horsepower of the, the engines, there, there's some degree of choice there, but not a whole lot because what's happened is that the uh, American auto industry is basically entirely shaped and driven by the government Department of Transportation Standards. They should have nothing to do with it. But they actually shape the entire industry. And so... Uh, uh, basically, to give you a nutshell, what uh, CAFE, what the CAFE standards do is by 2025, they have to, they force manufacturers to double their fleet-wide average to 55 miles a gallon. Okay, do you have any idea of what sort of, please don't for a moment think that new technology is going to enable uh, truck manufacturers to squeeze fantastic performance so they can deliver 55 miles, it, it cannot happen. The reason it cannot happen is that um, those of you with, uh, with the interest in the bent to do the calculations can literally figure out how much energy can be extracted from a gallon of gasoline, assuming, if you like, 100% efficiency, which doesn't exist in the real world, and then figure out what it costs to accelerate and move. 5,000 pounds of Ford or, or uh, Toyota or, or Dodge or, uh, or Chevy truck, and um, you will pretty soon easily be able to do, as, as I did, the, the realization that it's not going to happen. The pickup truck we'll be driving in 2025 is a weak, anemic, miserably pathetic relative of the pickup truck you can drive today, which, by the way, in itself is already a dramatically reduced pickup from the pickup that your father drove. So um, how is uh, Ford 
to to pick on one thing in which Ford distinguishes itself from the other three pickups. It's, it's just the stuff just interests me, and I I hope you'll find this interesting as well. <clears throat> as I pointed out to you, the uh, the weight of these four manufacturers, Ford, Toyota, Chevy, and Dodge, amazingly similar. But it is true that the Ford version, the Ford 150, <coughs> is weighs in at just under 5,600 pounds, and um, the Ram at the heaviest is um, just under fifth, uh, just under 6,000 pounds. So it's about 400, 400, 500 pounds lighter. So how does the Ford get to be four or 500 pounds lighter? than uh, the heaviest of the set, which is the Ram. How do they do it? Well, it's really kind of interesting. All its steel body panels have been replaced by lightweight aluminum. So the bed of the pickup, the sides, the doors, the roof, the entire pickup, with the exception of one little body part called the fire panel, which sort of is ahead of your feet. Everything else is made of lightweight aluminum. And uh, what they did there, there is um, managed to lower the weight of the, of the vehicle by about, as I say, about 400 pounds, maybe 500 pounds. At the cost of what? Well, uh, building the truck out of aluminum instead of out of steel adds $750 per truck. Now, none of this need be happening were it not for the government intrusion. Now, Ford might decide Without government involvement, Ford might well have decided to offer two models. You can buy a Ford 150 in steel. You can buy it for a much more expensive version in aluminum if you wanted to. For instance, one of the advantages of aluminum is it does not rust, or at least not the same way steel does. But today, with the amazing paints you find in uh, auto manufacturing, truly incredible paints. I mean, when you think of what a car puts up with in terms of temperature, hot in the daytime, cold in the night, hot in summer, cold in winter, uh, the bird droppings, tree drop, um, the amazing shine you can pull out of a car, even a four or five year old car. What a tribute to the way that uh, that paint, auto paint industry has evolved. But uh, at any rate, um, what happens, kind of interesting. So uh, Ford is, and here's, a pl here's an example of where we see the free market actually at work quite effectively. What I want to tell you about is uh, how Ford gets their aluminum and, um, and how there's actually a win-win uh, situation there, which I really enjoyed learning about, and I, I hope you will too. Coming right up on the next segment of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show as we move along with episode 11. Don't go away. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The Jeff Fisher Show. Buy a car. Get on an airplane. Get married. Purchase a gun. Adopt a pet. Apply for a hunting license. Apply for a fishing license. Buy a cell phone. Visit a casino. Get a prescription. Buy an M-rated video game. What do all of those have in common? The Jeff Fisher Show, Saturday morning, 6 to 8 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. 
Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Moving on with episode 11 of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks again for being part of it. Um, talking about pickup trucks. And um, I was telling you about the all-aluminum new Ford F-150 for uh, 2016. And um, by the way, uh, there, there are a number of interesting things about it. I said earlier that I like driving a V8, and I do. Uh, and if not bigger, I do. But um, the, uh, this Ford I'm talking about, this new Ford F-150 made of aluminum, well, it's powered by uh, a three-and-a-half-liter V6 engine. And it, it, it puts out a decent horsepower, for those of you interested, about 365 horsepower. But how does it do it? Twin turbochargers. So I, I mentioned earlier, uh, a V6 can kind of work as long as it's got a pair of turbos on it as well. Uh, a turbocharger, for those of you who uh, aren't necessarily into it, it's just a very simple device. Um, it's usually driven by exhaust gases, spins a fan, and the spinning fan uh, um, runs a compressor which pumps more compressed air than normal into the combustion chambers of the engine. And um, on a high-performing engine, the limitation on power is not how much gasoline you can squirt into the chamber for the spark plug to fire up, but how much air you can get in there because anything burning requires oxygen. So uh, particularly in hot weather where the air is less dense, turbochargers uh, step into the gap and uh, make up. They uh, basically charge the cylinders. They force more air into the cylinders than would be sucked in under normal circumstances. Anyway, it's just for those of you interested. Okay, so I tell you how the free market worked in the favor of how Ford um, managed to build an aluminum F-150 pickup truck um, at within a sort of price range that, that is comparable to the other three uh, main pickup truck manufacturers, uh, Toyota, Dodge, and uh, Chevrolet or GMC. And so uh, how did they do it? Well, they got hold of a relatively small aluminum company called Novellus. And Novellus, I think, is headquartered in Atlanta, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, one of their main plants is in a small town upstate New York called Oswego. And uh, Oswego is not that far by water from uh, Detroit over the lakes. And uh, Novellus in Oswego um, makes aluminum. But here's the interesting thing. Their specialty is making aluminum uh, out of aluminum s uh, scrap. And up till now, um, Os um, uh, Novellus, on the shores of Lake Ontario, has specialized in making aluminum cans for the beverage business. And so the next time you crack open a can of beer or a can of Pepsi or Coke, uh, there's a very good chance that that aluminum can was made by Novellus in Oswego, upstate New York. And, uh, and of course, they make a lot of their aluminum cans out of old aluminum cans. So they've, they've sort of nailed down this aluminum recycling business, and they've been doing pretty well on this. And so what they did is they went to Ford and they said, look, you guys – could afford to switch to aluminum, even though it's much more expensive than steel, uh, to the extent of about another $750 in raw material. But uh, instead of uh, buying virgin aluminum 
that is mined from bauxite and turned into aluminum ingots in, uh, in companies that, that specialize in that, uh, instead of that, why don't you buy recycled aluminum from us? And so they got together, and this really, this is an elegant solution. It's a free market solution where these two companies got together, and uh, the way it works is that Novellus supplies the sheets in, in big rolls of 16th of an inch thick aluminum to, uh, Detroit, to uh, Ford in Detroit. Ford goes ahead and stamps out the body parts. Now, if you think about it, it's like, uh, you know, it's like kids cutting doll dresses out. Uh, you've always got a lot of parts that, that were part of the aluminum that were sort of holding in the part you want to punch out. And what's left is as you stamp out the panel, you end up only using about 60% of all the aluminum. The rest ends up as scrap. And um, instead, what Ford used to do is they would gather up all the different metal scraps from their stamping plants in Dearborn and in Buffalo, New York. And instead of that, instead of bundling everything together, Ford set up a system that would keep all the aluminum separate and so that they could then send truckloads of scrap aluminum every day back to uh, Novellus in Oswego. And uh, actually, Novellus set the whole system up, and um, they set up 150 trailers to go backwards and forwards to bring scrap back from Ford, reprocess it, um, they also pick up scrap from uh, Alcoa, which is another sort of virgin uh, aluminum manufacturer. And, um, and then all that loose scrap from which Ford had stamped out the parts they wanted comes to Novellus. It gets processed and cleaned. Then it gets melted. By the way, 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit is what uh, it, it goes at. And then they, they sort of add back some of the ingredients that get um, uh, unbalanced because of the processing it's undergone. And then finally, when the molten metal is completely free of impurities, uh, they then cast it into big 15-ton ingots, each one 15 tons. And then from there, they take the ingots, and the ingots are rolled into sheets. And then the sheets are shipped in giant coils back to Ford stamping plants, and then the whole process goes all back over and beginning again. And... Um, and that's what goes on. So you've got, you've got a whole lot of truck drivers making a living driving aluminum backwards and forwards between Detroit and Oswego. Um, driving one way, they're driving scrap back to Oswego. Driving the other way, they're taking fresh coils of 16-inch uh, steel ready to be stamped into Ford F-150 trucks. And, um, and it works beautifully. Absolutely terrific system. And uh, there you've got a free market solution. Um, as I say, did the trucks need to be made out of aluminum? No. But like everybody else, Ford is nervous about what they're going to do. And the way, the way the corporate average fuel economy standards work is that it's not necessarily per vehicle, but it's per fleet. In other words, 
Um, car manufacturers have to juggle things, but you see, the trouble is that if the standard requires 55 miles a gallon, then that is so tough to achieve uh, that you don't have a lot to play with. And that's why I say that it's quite easy to calculate that um, the vehicles we know and love today, which are themselves shadows of the muscle cars we used to have, uh, these vehicles will be utterly forgotten by the time 2025 arrives, if indeed the stuff doesn't get repealed. And uh, I must tell you, my hope is that sanity returns to the United States of America, and sanity would mean a massive overhauling, well, no, not overhauling, removing of major sections of government. It really would. Doable, that would be a separate discussion, probably one that we ought to have. Uh, but among the many changes that ought to take place, among the many, many changes that we really ought to see take place in America, I wonder if anything is as urgent as prison, prison reform. Why does that concern me? Uh, I mean, aren't, you know, don't, I, uh, don't I, I care about law and order and so on and so forth? Yeah, well, sure. Um, the trouble is, though, that I do think, I really do think, that our prisons are savage, poisonous environments and that the millions of people in them serve to do nothing except further perpetuate and grow a horrendous and enormous underclass. And uh, I'm sure you've heard some of the statistics. I mean, the particularly in the African-American community, and, uh, and that is in itself part of another conversation, but uh, the enormous number of men particularly who already have prison records, it's a, it's a massive problem. And more than that is the inhumanity of the prison system. Incarceration is horrible, absolutely hor horrible. Um, what goes on behind prison walls are things that ordinary citizens like you and me do not know about and we don't want to know about. Um, in incarceration, convicts learn new crime skills. They join gangs or they rejoin gangs. They go crazy. They fight. They get depressed. They suffer in solitary confinement and uh, they adopt the sick ways of prison life. And then for whatever brief time they find themselves outside, they don't have the job and the life skills in order to even survive on the outside. It's not possible. And so after release, the recidivism rate is very high. It's well over 50%. Um, I believe from the figures that I've seen that it's much more like 70%. In other words, only 30% of people who come out of jail never go back. And that, I believe, is an absolute optimistic, high estimate. I think well over 70% of people who come out of prison end up back there. It's, it's a terrible thing. Uh, people, um, because of sentencing guidelines, 
And, and by the way, don't believe the, uh, the story about, oh, the overwhelming majority of people are in prison for harmless drug offenses. That's not true. Uh, they may today be in prison because of their last conviction, which was on drug possession. But they are already violent felons from previous convictions and stays in prison. So uh, please don't for one moment believe this notion that prison is filled with gentle souls who pose no harm whatsoever to the rest of the civilian population. It's not true. That simply isn't the case. They, they pose enormous threats, and, uh, and we will pay the price for the wholesale um, freeing of convicts from incarceration. At the same time, there is no question that there are convicts who uh, – in most cases, the ones I'm talking about are people who have become Christian while in jail, uh, very often through the services of uh, prison ministry that Chuck Colson, the late Chuck Colson, uh, founded and established. And uh, by the way, a charity I uh, support and urge you to do the same. Um, in, in those cases, yes, there are definitely people in prison, no question about it, uh, people who um, have... Um, become older and who have acquired skills, in many cases uh, becoming um, ministers to other prisoners. Um, and these people are in there because of sentencing legalities and formalities. They probably shouldn't be there. I don't know what the numbers are. But uh, easy way, an easy way to solve the prison problem in America, and I'm being very serious. This is not facetious. Uh, I have a biblical – oh, I shouldn't have said that. that, that that's going to ruin it for a lot of people already right there. Okay, forget I said that. I have a solution. I will have to confess that it isn't mine, and I will probably share with you where it does come. Uh, of course, I'll share with you where it came from. But, uh, yes, I have a solution to America's prison problem, a real solution. It's not going to be overnight, but literally within a few years, things could be very different. What is it exactly? I'll tell you, coming right back here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Stay right there. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Coming up today on Pat and Stu. Now that's a little bit closer to denying the link to CO2 and climate change and is denying the link between Bill Nye and being a scientist because he's not one. He's not. He, he is not one. He's, he's an engineer. He's not a guy. He's he's an old man. He's a science. He's a science esque guy. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Okay, uh, here we are, the end of episode 11 of the Rabbi Daniel Lapin Show. And uh, talking about an easy, relatively quick transformation of the criminal justice system. Look, uh, prison is terrible. Terrible. Uh, the United States now has more prisoners than any other country in the world. In sheer numbers and as a percentage of the population, whichever way you want to count it. Uh, America's rate of incarceration is seven times that of Canada. Or, or of any Western European country. So although we often talk about, oh, the land of the free, uh, we are incarcerating more of our people than the world's most draconian regimes. 
We have more prisoners in China, and admittedly they execute many of their prisoners, so that, that isn't altogether fair. And um, uh, we, we, we actually have more prisoners than we have soldiers. We have more prison guards than we have United States Marines. And it wasn't always like this, by the way. Uh, back in 1970, which is, is not that long ago, is it? 1970? It's not that long ago. We didn't even have half a million Americans behind bars. It was a little over 300,000. And um, instead, what happened since then is it's gone up and up and up. It's gone up 500% in the past 40 years. It's unbelievable. Um, so what's going, what's going on? And um, more than that, I mean, is there any evidence that being in prison reduces crime? Of course not. All we're doing is keeping more and more people off the streets. And you might say, well, at least that's something, and you're right, but what if there's a better way? Why do this? And, um, and think about it. Think about how easy it is for even a law-abiding person to end up in prison. You're a law-abiding citizen, and think about it. At some point or another, it's so easy to commit a crime. There's so many crimes on the books. You know, maybe you've taken illegal drugs at some point in your life, or, or maybe you've gone into a fight with a friend or a stranger, or, you know, blows were exchanged. There it is. You're in danger of prison right there. Or maybe you drove back from a bar drunk just once. Maybe you didn't even know you were over the DWI limit. Um, or, uh, or, or maybe you, heaven forbid, maybe you clicked on an online picture of somebody who turned out to be young. Or you accepted a gift from a family member and told the IRS it was a loan. Uh, or, you know, whatever it was. But people's luck runs out and they end up in jail for something small or for something big. And all of a sudden, you find, and this happens to people, and it's terrifying. What's going to happen to you in prison? Get raped? Uh, the guards are brutal? I mean, incarceration is terrible. And coming out, you're just not equipped to, to get back to normal life. You're an ex-convict. Uh, your your chances of employment. Look, I don't I don't have to dwell on how horrible this whole thing is, and what happens when you're in prison is unimaginable. The cruelty of the guards, the absolute unnecessary cruelty. My friends, if you can get together with somebody who spent time in jail and just talk to them, I think you will find it illuminating. So what's the solution? Well, it's very simple. You see, in this matter, as for all other matters, I turn to ancient Jewish wisdom because my name is Rabbi Daniel Lapp, and I'm your rabbi, and I turn to the Bible. And to my astonishment, what do I discover? Guess what? There is no incarceration in the Bible. Does that mean there's no criminal justice system? Do you think the Bible speaks of a wonderful messianic time of everybody good and nobody does anything bad, nothing like that at all. I'm sorry to disappoint you. 
But the Bible speaks of very normal human beings like you and me, people, some of them are better than us, some of them are worse than us, but it speaks about human society and wherever there's human society, there is going to be crime. And wherever there's crime, if you don't deal with it correctly, you damage and ultimately destroy all social structure. So how does the Bible deal with crime? Well, guess what? There's no incarceration. What? Nobody gets sent to prison. There's no jail. That's right. You won't find those words anywhere in the Bible. So what do they do? Well, they punish in three ways. The most important way is economically. You see, the Bible doesn't accept the notion that somebody says, well, I'd like to pay my fine, but I'm on welfare. I don't have any money. It doesn't work like that. The Bible has a solution, and I'll tell you about it in another, uh, on another occasion. The second form of punishment is execution, capital punishment. That has its place. That is moral and just. It's correct, again, uh, for reasons that I can elaborate upon on another occasion. But for now, you've got financial uh, uh, compensation, fines and monetary payment. You've got execution, capital punishment, and the third most common form of uh, punishment in a biblical system, whippings, lashes. That's right, flogging. And here's the simple question with which we start. I want to, uh, knowing what prison is, knowing what it would do to your life, if you could imagine, just imagine, an accident, something ridiculous happened. You signed a piece of paper and you didn't meet. There are a million different ways this could play and come, come down. But whatever it is, you shockingly find yourself sentenced to five years in prison. Just imagine the horror of that. And you go into a nightmare mode. And the next thing is you hire a prison consultant, a former convict, who will spend all the time with you between now and the time you actually are locked up training you and preparing you for survival in prison. That's how bad it is. That's what people do. Uh, we're talking about nearly 3 million Americans in prisons and jails. So, uh, yeah, so there you are. You're about to join them. Five-year sentence. No parole. You're going to serve full five years. And the judge says, or you can have a choice. You could submit to 10 brutal lashes on your posterior on your butt. Ten painful lashes or five years in jail. Now look, that flogging is severe and brutal. I'm not going to say it's cruel and unusual because I don't think those terms mean anything today. But um, with a lash, I'll be, I'll be honest with you, skin is literally ripped off the body. But um, going to prison means losing a part of your life, not part of your skin. And your skin will grow back. The years you spend in prison destroy your life. Flogging will be horribly painful, but it's all over in 10 minutes. You may well need a, a one-week hospital stay after that. That's not out of the question. It's not as if you just go home and play pool. No, you're not going to be in good shape for a week, maybe two weeks. You may need some hospital time. But you're not in jail. And you're a free person, and there's no jail record, and you haven't lost five years of your life. Tell me something. Do you know anybody at all who would choose five years in jail over a, a flogging 
I don't think so. I really don't. Who would? Look, um, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing. That's the biblical system, and it works. And if we change that automatically, and oh, by the way, the recidivism rate from flogging, <laughs> very low indeed, I promise you. Really, it really is. Um, you know, rehabilitation of prisoners short of conversion to Christianity. And by the way, my problem is that there are far more American prisoners converting to Islam than to Christianity. Friends in um, Chuck Colson's prison ministries have told me that um, the uh, Muslim procedure, the, the, the prison authorities are much more hospitable and welcoming to Muslim religious clerics who come in and convert to Islam than they are to Christian. But that shouldn't shock you. It's true, though. So um, there it is. Uh, this would end the problem. That uh, nobody, but nobody ever wants to get flogging again. Once you've been flogged once, you really never want it again. By contrast, when you come out of prison, in many ways you do want to go back because in many ways it provides you with the only kind of life you can cope with. See? Furthermore, people can witness the flogging. People are aware of it. It doesn't have to happen, have to happen in private. I'm not saying they should sell tickets and turn it into a spectacle, but it's really very effective. Very, very effective. Um, something that um, I would really recommend that we think about very seriously. Uh, I must tell you that... Um, in uh, in colonial times, there was flogging. A lot of people go, well, yeah, there were slaves. They were flogging slaves. No, that's not true. That's not true at all. They flogged everybody. And, um, and people have writings from the period about how effective corporal punishment was. Um, some ex-slaves made statements that said corporal punishment taught them valuable lessons. Female former slaves in particular observed that flogging was needed and effective. And so while we, we tend to sort of associate flogging with slavery, that's simply not true. George Washington, General George Washington, used flogging to discipline his white troops, mostly white troops. Uh, the Continental Congress authorized General Washington to apply no more than 40 lashes. By the way, do you know why, why they said 40? Because virtually everyone in the Continental Congress was Christian. Virtually everyone knew the Bible. And when discussing lashes in the Bible, the maximum is always 40. That's the absolute maximum allowed, and it actually even drops from that, but that's another discussion. But in the Bible, it says 40, and so the Continental Congress authorized General George Washington to lash his, uh, to flog his, uh, his troops no more than 40 times. In 1776, General George Washington actually got authority from Congress to go as high as 100 lashes. Uh, just before Yorktown, he sought he, – he General Washington went to Congress to ask for 500 lashes. Uh, Thomas Jefferson provided for flogging for Virginia. Uh, don't forget, in its early years, America had no prisons. You know why? Because they had flogging. Really, that's how it was. Uh, look, it's, um, it's a terrible thing that we do not 
um, give this option. If it were only an option, let's say first time, I'd start this off with first time um, violators. Somebody who's, who's going to prison for the first time in his life. Say to him, you know what? You got a, uh, an option. 10, 12, 15 lashes or five years or your 10 years and whatever you've been sentenced to. Uh, my best proof that uh, lashing and flogging is not cruel and unusual punishment is that everybody would choose it. Everybody. But I'd give it as an option to people who are going to prison for the first time. Keep them out of prison. So that way we don't increase the prison population. We stop increasing it and that automatically means that with time we decrease it. And what's more, the uh, rehabilitation rate is close to 100% with flogging. So uh, you really, really should think about this. Uh, when did prisons come in, by the way? Um, late 18th century, 17, I mean, right about the time we, uh, late, late in the 1700s, after we became a nation, the Quakers mostly did it to heal the criminally ill. They believed that uh, the criminals were ill, and um, they, uh, they, they originally wanted to set up penitentiaries that would be kind and gentle places, geared to personal salvation, a lot of religious teaching, and uh, to, to bring people a better life. But prisons very quickly turned absolutely horrible. Uh, the first one was built in Philadelphia in 1790. Inmates began to go absolutely crazy. Charles Dickens wrote, by the way, he toured that prison. And uh, he wrote it, uh, I hold the slow and daily tampering with the mysteries of the brain to be immeasurably worse than any torture of the body. That's what we're talking about. Flog people instead of incarcerating them. And there is the true solution to America's horribly cruel ineffective, brutal, criminal incarceration system we have today. Well, on that bright and cheerful note, my friends, we come to the end of episode 11 of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thank you for being with me all the way through. I really appreciate knowing you're part of the show, and uh, I appreciate hearing from you on Facebook, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on Twitter, Daniel Lappin, and, of course, at my website at rabbidaniellappin.com. Wonderful to hear from you. All I have time to do now is to wish you a wonderful week till we share another podcast next week, uh, a week of good health and prosperity. God bless.